Hi, I'm Sien Xiao. And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience. The waiting room revolution starts right now. Welcome back to the waiting room revolution. Today is the second part of my interview with Deirdre Pike. Today, we discuss how healthcare providers can better serve the needs of the LGBTQ community and how we can all push the system to be better. As I said before, I've been doing some reading in preparation for our conversation, and I feel pretty ashamed to actually be a healthcare provider, to be honest. So I'm going to share with you a little bit about what I read, and maybe you can um, give some comment. So I read that um, at least one-sixth of people in the LGBTQ plus community have experienced discrimination in doctor's offices, and that a fifth avoids seeking medical care out of fear. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. It's, uh, and there really is, there's a need um, to differentiate even more now when you talk about um, the experience of LGB, you know, sexual orientation minorities and the trans community that is so, you know, has such a different experience even because of so much is medicalized in terms of, of what the experience is in the trans community. And I think that I really think is another whole show. But for me to be able to talk about uh, experiences, um, a sexual orientation minority, you know, as a young, as a young woman in university with my first partner, um, we went together to the family doctor in, that we were looking for in our apartment building in, in London. And um, uh, went for breast exams. That's what you did. There was no such thing as a mammogram. I don't believe. And, uh, and the doctor said to my partner, and I, I'm glad I was there. Uh, wow. Um, with the size of your breasts, I might have to charge you double. And I, from that day on was never going to the doctor alone. And, uh, either was my partner. And, um, uh, you know, we sort of laughed and walked away from that experience. And I'm glad that I carried on, that I was strong enough to keep going. And I have stayed in, in the medical system. I haven't, haven't had a great need so far in my life, thank you. But um, others definitely do not go. Uh, they would stop going after an experience like that. And also, um, certainly, they would not come out. You know, we weren't out. We were just there as roommates. But local research that I did a number of years back uh, showed that, in fact, it was over half of the people that uh, I filled in a survey had said that they would not come out to their family doctors. So, yes, there, you know, shame isn't helpful, but certainly um, a recognition of movement that's needed is really is going to to help us in this conversation. So I appreciate that you make that recognition. But now let's really see about it. How's that moving forward changing? Before we get to the moving forward, I'm still wallowing in the, in the discrimination. I still have to get it off my chest, if you don't mind. The thing is, is that the irony of all of this is that apparently people who are in the LGBTQ plus community experience discrimination are actually at increased risk of illness and negative outcomes. People who are discriminated against have poor healthcare outcomes. And this is a group of people who are high, who have been highly discriminated against. 
That's right. And, uh, you know, and we always have to be clear about the intersections of the people that we're talking about. So you become much more intentional about recognizing BIPOC people, Black, Indigenous people of color, and the intersection in the LGBTQ community. So when you multiply all of the possibilities of uh, the um, what could impact your outcome in the healthcare system, uh, there certainly is a disadvantage. But even, again, for just thinking of uh, sexual orientation, the fact that, yes, yeah, so many people, for example, we know smoking in in the LGBTQ community, smoking cigarettes is, uh, for example, in the province where I live, uh, 37% of LGBTQ people smoke cigarettes. Uh, it's about 20% lower than that uh, for the heterosexual community, for the general population, I should say, uh, Ontario. So yes, we already have some particular features, you know, that, uh, that uh, you know, alcohol, uh, the use of alcohol is much higher and drug use in our communities and suicide rate, uh, you know, mental health, uh, all of that certainly is complex. And then to have a negative experience and say, no, I'm not going back to the healthcare system really is our experience. It's um, so sad that people who have, um, you know, suffered and celebrated coming out uh, of the closet would feel like they are reluctant um, to disclose that to healthcare providers um, when that's been for many such a hurdle and a triumph at the same time. And I, I read that people are also very fearful of being forced back into the closet when they intersect with healthcare because they want to avoid the discrimination and how terrible it feels to come out and then have to go back in and then come out and then have to go back in and the fear of losing their freedom when they're facing the healthcare system. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, two fr uh, friends of mine are a couple that have been together 35 years coming up and um, are now needing to navigate the cancer system uh part of the healthcare system and the the non the person that doesn't have cancer in the partnership contacted me in advance to say what was it like for you and your partner because my partner had cancer and we've gone through that and you know should we come out or not come out imagine being together 35 years and then wondering uh whether it would be advantageous or not for your healthcare providers to know that this is your love. This is your support. This is the person. And I've been texting with those folks now over the last couple of weeks, and it's been horrific for them, uh, mostly because of the pandemic, because of, you know, more because they don't even uh, get to present together. So the question is even kind of moot in so many ways. It's uh, it's just been horrific. And um, yeah, and another aspect of why this conversation is so important, Sammy. You know, it reminds me of something else I read about, um, you know, providers are often reluctant to ask um, patients questions about sexual preference um, because they don't want to embarrass them. You know, there's this feeling like we don't want to embarrass. But apparently 90% of people don't share that fear that they would prefer to be asked by healthcare providers. Right. Well, and we want to be asked uh, the right question, right? And so... Um in fact, 
uh, I just want to, uh, you know, say that preference is not even the word that would be on the form, right? And and to places and help them figure out how do we ask these questions, you know? It's not my preference to be a lesbian. You know, it's not that. I mean, I do, I, being a lesbian. I pref it's not I prefer women over men. I am attracted or my orientation and so on. So you want to be always uh, checking um, the right language as you're asking a question and why you want to ask a question. And uh, definitely uh, sexual orientation is so important. Uh, who you're attracted to, who's in your support circle is so important in a healthcare experience. And so, uh, you know, I've spoken uh, in training with doctors before who never thought it was important to know uh, who was in this person's life and now have come to see why it makes such a big difference. You know, when you're looking at a holistic approach, of course you want to know who's the backer to this person on the team. Which is why I think people tend to ask about your partner, uh, not your partner, but I mean, it, 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 you know, instead of um, assuming your, your wife or your husband, you know, we use the term partner if we don't know to leave it open. That's great. Like you do that, but not very many people do that. That's why I was really, uh, that's good. I mean, I talk to high school kids in their LGBTQ positive space groups who have said, you know, if our teachers would use language, even like uh, partner, but you know, you can tell they, they know which teachers might be a safe space to come out when they use language like partner, instead of automatically binary language that excludes so heavily. How would you know if your healthcare provider or the healthcare environment is inclusive? How would you pick up on that? Well, I mean, organizationally, whether you're a healthcare provider or a steel plant, you know, first of all, you look at the environment just visually. So right away, uh, the rainbow uh, flag or some kind of insignia on a poster in a waiting room saying, uh, this is an LGBTQ positive space where human rights are respected and LGBTQ people, their friends and allies are welcomed and supported. So what's around the space? Uh, so that's clear. And then you can tell when people have had training or not, when you walk up to the receptionist window and and they use language, either binary or not, you know, um, when they hand you the form to fill out, does it say, does this allow for the kind of expansive realities of people's identities filled in here or not? So those are key signs, you know, uh, then you go to the washroom. Does it just have men and women? Um, or is there, you know, is there, again, that's an environmental assessment that you can make. And then in the conversations, it becomes, uh, you know, really evident. What advice do you have for healthcare providers who want to do inclusive care better, but may feel awkward or unsure at first? Where is a place for them to start? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I would encourage all, uh, you know, healthcare teams to have taken some kind of LGBTQ positive space training, some ground level kind of conversation that uh, allows you to be familiar with the language um, that you that you want to be using, so that you're not stumbling, um, you know, and that you're able as a physician to guide the rest of your team in the kind of language too. But so anyway, providing training is really important and there's lots of resources 
usually where people are to to be able to follow up on that. I uh, part of the training that I do uh, involves people having a homework assignment that is an out loud conversation somewhere. Go home and say some things out loud. Practice this. You know there are people that I've trained even within recent years that to say trans, you know, they're stumbling, two-spirit, transgender, to talk about lesbians. You have to be able to say these words out loud. You have to intentional about people's gender. Uh, sometimes, um, you know, I, I present with someone who's non-binary and they use the pronouns they and them. It is important to be able to have people identify that and for you to practice saying that uh, and then know how to apologize when your intent is great, but your impact might not be. You wanted it to be. And and what it requires is really a sense of, well, what we talked about right from the beginning, an openness, uh, a compassion that you, th- you think is inherent in healthcare providers, but it's hard for everyone when they're caught off guard and maybe they don't feel they have the the language right away. This other important thing is it's important where you get your information from. And, uh, you know, for example, as a white woman, I don't get my anti-racism, you know, I don't try to find what I need to know off the backs of people who are already oppressed by systems that I am advantaged by. And so it does require your own commitment to education, your own uh, ways of having these kinds of conversations, the very thing that you're committed to right in this space. And so uh, that's what I would really encourage people who are a bit uncomfortable wondering about this conversation, just uh, be intentional and practice. It's a discipline, anything else. Mm-hmm. It's probably much bigger bang for its buck for us to um, influence people when they're still in their formal training before they graduate, right? Like in nursing school and all healthcare providers, doctors, social workers, there's a lot to prepare for when someone's facing a progressive illness and potentially coming to the end of their life. Apparently, people in the LGBTQ community within communities is less prepared for these things than um, other people because, yeah, of of all the discrimination in um, the legal world as well, legal knowledge, um, social workers don't have the same knowledge around um, the legalities for uh, LGBTQ peoples, you know, what it means to settle affairs and who is the family of choice and specifically around who is the substitute decision maker. Apparently people in the LGBTQ uh, community within communities are less likely to know who their substitute decision maker is and therefore may not get their choices honored at a time when they can't make their own choice. Because I mean, I know in our region in our province, um, there's a natural hierarchy of who makes decisions for people if they can't make decisions for their own health care. So for example, um, it might be someone's mother next in line or someone's father, unless you've assigned someone. And so going back to what you said about people um, being disconnected from their biological families, potentially, and quilting together a community uh, of choice, which works for them. But when it comes down to dealing with healthcare decisions, they may be less prepared if they don't realize they should be assigning someone POA 
for their personal care. And you may need to speak to a social worker or a social worker may need to offer that information to someone. But if you haven't you know, disclose that you're part of the LGBTQ uh, peoples, then the conversation never happens. So, so again, multiple layers of barriers to leave someone less prepared. Yeah, it's a big fear that uh, at the end of life, that all of a sudden your parents that haven't spoken to you are going to, you know, I used to worry that uh, way back that my partner would not be recognized. How could she be? I called her a roommate who could ever uh that I wanted this person to be in charge of my final decision, but we got a will. I, I got early on, I was in my twenties when I had a will for this person to, you know, so that we knew we could make these decisions for each other. None of us, neither of us were sick. We didn't even have any property or whatever, but there was no way our parents were going to come in and somehow make these decisions for us. But I don't know how I got that knowledge, but uh, definitely people are um, are not well equipped with that knowledge from all, you know, across society. Uh, and, and particularly, as you've pointed out, we struggle with that as well. You also mentioned hugging in the bathroom to say goodbye. Uh, that is, oh, that's so poignant. That was a story. That was such a strong story. I was at a conference all about LGBTQ elders and aging in long-term care at McGill uh, University. And um, the the professor who had done that uh, work, that's the story he told about this long-term couple that every night partner would come in and and instead of just leaving his partner in bed and hugging him, they were so afraid of getting caught. This poor sick man would shuffle to the bathroom so that he could hug there and then have to work to get back to bed. It was just terrible. And we know how important intimacy is along the entire illness journey. Lots of sexual needs go unmet for everyone who are facing, you know, progressive illness. But still, um, intimacy is very important for many people. Um, Simple intimacy, like physical closeness, you know, when that is... um, you know, when you feel like even that has to be a secret and you have to hug in the bathroom, that's really, that is so sad. I did want to say that in one of the episodes, we talk about knowing your style and um, capitalizing on your natural coping mechanisms or your personality. I mean, clearly, Deirdre, I would label you as a super seeker. (laughs) You're just one of those people that, you know, the stories that you tell about high school and university and um, how you handled things. And I wouldn't say you're the average person, though. There's a lot of people that aren't as um, super seeking as you. But what I do know is that uh, the LGBTQ community within communities has a lot of resilience right? And is accustomed to advocating for themselves. And the resiliency and the the need for advocacy that they've already lived through has got to be something that works for people um, if they can recognize that it's still in them, even throughout an illness journey, that, that there are strengths to harness. Absolutely. I think 
you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking earlier about the chosen family thing. A long time ago, somebody said, you know, we should not always be pointing to the things that make us sound like victims, like that our life is terrible. You know, uh, just the fact that uh, we were all called gay meant that we should be more happy to begin with somehow, you know, and that we have all the, you know, we can't, we shouldn't be walking around saying how terrible things always are. And yet, of course, we need to balance out much does need to improve for us. And the fact that our chosen families, this idea of like, I have watched women die cared for by other women in the community in ways that I've not seen in so many uh, more traditional family units as I've helped people walk their, their loved ones home. You know, the idea that we have been able to surround ourselves with the right seekers, this, whether they're super seekers or just, you know, great casserole bakers, we have been able to figure out who needs to be in our lives because we could not count on the people we should have been able to. And therefore, our strength really is in that resilience. And it's why we will be able to reform and revolutionize the waiting room um, because we are having these conversations. I just love that. It's so true. There are natural ways of being, the social connections that have had to be fostered, you know, the um, weaving together supports around you when you, you didn't naturally have them, um, and anticipating this need for advocacy. I mean, uh, I mean th these are the ingredients that we are trying to leverage in the podcast, to be honest with you, Deirdre. So they naturally exist in the LGBTQT community within communities. There's lots of evidence of it in our communities. It isn't available for everyone, but it is evidenced. And we want to be able to make that possible for everyone. There's a lot of people that will that will die alone, that will that will live alone through their chronic illness. But we have to be able to find ways to help people create community once we recognize this uh, reality of solitude and isolation. And certainly the, the pandemic has brought that out. I think that we'll be able to come up uh, with ways in our communities and provinces and countries to really respond by having intentional uh, LGBTQ healthcare conversations and, and responses. And I see it more and more. We have to ensure, definitely, that LGBTQT peoples don't feel they have to return to the closet to receive quality care as they grow older and approach end of life. No one needs to go back to the closet. And the age that people are coming out now, it's going to be so different. You know, you talked about the different cohorts and just a really brief conversation about that tells us that, uh, you know, for me, I was 32 when I really there's advantages and disadvantages to the closet, but young people today are not choosing to be closeted for the most part. You know, there's, they are coming out younger and uh, will not be this kind of, uh, yeah, there'll be a different population, you know, 50 years from now, this conversation will be so different uh, as of their experiences. But it's important that we're cognizant of the of the people aging now and what their experience has been pointed out. That's right. 
And again, we don't know the scope because there are still so many that um, we're not able to come out of the closet. So I feel like we have an overt and covert swell of people from the LGBTQT communities within communities that are now about to or are facing progressive life-limiting illness, and we're not meeting their needs. I want to thank you, Deirdre, um, from the bottom of my heart for creating this safe space for us to have this very candid interview with you. You're gracious, you're kind and caring and um, tolerant of me fumbling. (laughs) I want to give you the final words to say anything that you feel has been left unsaid about this topic. I mean, there's tons, but I'm going to say something that you mentioned there is that, uh, that I somehow was tolerant. I often say, you know, you hear people say, that's what we need. We need more tolerance. And I think the word tolerance should be reserved for lactose. And I'm sorry, people can't enjoy cheese or milk or whatever comes with that lactose intolerance. But for human beings, we move beyond tolerance to appreciation and celebration of people's lives. And that's what we are aiming for in uh, healthcare and in every other, in every waiting room uh, is an opportunity really to, um, to really appreciate and celebrate people for who they are and help them navigate uh, this important system. And it is definitely beyond tolerance. And this kind of conversation about uh, revolutionizing the waiting room is exactly what needs to happen. And this has been a great part one. I can't wait to hear uh, who else you have on to keep this conversation going. I love that, Deirdre. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk with me. I'm so glad we were able to queer it up. My pleasure. Thank you, Sammy. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and help us get the word out. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketza. The podcast is edited and produced by me, Sien Xiao, and Kayla McMillan. Special thanks to Krista Honstra, Principal of Clarity Hub. Please go to our website to join in the conversation, waitingroomrevolution.com.